Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Shikermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of Hopkins Biotech Network's Transcript. Today is a little bit different because we have two guests with us today, one in industry and one in academia. Both of these guests are involved in the development of strategies that aim to use the biology of oxygen sensing to treat various types of cancer. Our first guest is Dr. Donald Anderson. He's a senior scientist at Merck, an American multinational pharmaceutical company that develops and manufactures medicine in an extremely broad range of therapeutic areas. Uh, he was also formerly a scientist at Peloton Therapeutics, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company whose lead product is a novel oral HIF2 alpha inhibitor in late stage development, and Merck acquired that company. Our second guest is Dr. Caroline Vissers. She's the bright new addition to the faculty at UCSF, where she's a principal investigator and operates a lab that studies how specific mRNA modifications regulate both healthy development and disease. She's also an alumni at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She completed her PhD here in the BCMB program. One of her key collaborators is Dr. Greg Semenza who received the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his discovery of genes encoding the HIF proteins, which play an instrumental role in oxygen sensing. The nature of their collaboration is to dissect the role of hypoxia-induced mRNA modifications in breast cancer. Don, Caroline, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah, nice to be here. Okay, so having both of you on together, I think will be particularly productive not only because of the connection with respect to the biology of hypoxia, but to highlight the fact that industry and academia are not necessarily separate entities, although their short-term goals may diverge. A lot of their long-term goals, um, including the development of treatments that improve quality of life for patients, are very much in sync. It's just that the two are at different stages in the development cycle with academia in early discovery, proof of concept stage, and the pharmaceutical industry in the later development of and commercialization of therapies at scale. Uh, but before we get into that, let's touch a little bit on the early background of both of you. Uh, where did you guys grow up and what initially sparked your interests in science? I'd be happy to start. I was born in the Netherlands, and when I was seven, my family moved to California. And I think actually one of the things that sparked my early interest in STEM is that I didn't speak any English, so I couldn't follow my classes except for math. I was very good at math because it doesn't require any spoken language. Uh, so that very early on uh, kind of pushed me in the direction of STEM. And then beyond that, I've always been a very curious person, and research really provides an opportunity to explore that curiosity in kind of a limitless way. Yeah, and uh, so that's pretty amazing, Caroline. Um, for me, I grew up in Florida uh, and 
definitely never thought that I would go to college. I was a musician. Um, wasn't really something that was on my radar. So, uh, you know, I ended up moving to Chicago where I was working on um, trying to be in a band and I uh, screwed up my neck pretty bad, which ruined my chances of going on tour. And I couldn't play drums. I was a drummer and I couldn't play drums. And so I was working in a homeless shelter actually. And in the homeless shelter, uh, I saw that a lot of people really needed some um, health care. So my original thought was I'm going to become a medical doctor and I'm going to come back to Chicago and fix this system. And so uh, through a really um, strange sequence of events, ended up getting a bachelor's degree at Cornell and um, did research and decided I liked research better than trying to be a medical doctor. And so got my PhD. Do you think it influences the way you approach your scientific thinking, having that more creative background? And Carolyn, I don't know about you too, if you could weigh in on that. Yeah, creativity is uh, is paramount to any any sort of scientific work. If you want to be a good scientist, I think it's good to take some art classes, uh, learn some music. Uh, it just helps you to think outside of the box. Yeah, I think that also speaks to the value of diversity of experience, whether it's music or immigrants or any any other group of people who have a different experience and therefore a totally different viewpoint of how they approach uh, not only science in general, but a particular question. Caroline, what made you interested in pursuing a professorship? That's actually a great question. When I started my PhD, I was pretty adamant that I would not go into academia and I was much more interested in industry or in entrepreneurship. Um, but what I ended up working on was this new field of RNA modifications that really had not been explored at all. It's very new. And it was clearly such an important pathway in many systems. So I worked both in neuroscience and a little bit in cancer. Um, and it seems to be almost a, a fundamental regulatory system in cells. And so that was really exciting to me. Uh, and I felt like before that could be really solidly spun into industry, we needed a lot more work on the ground. Um, and kind of a combination of luck that I ended up working on this and it being a hot new field helped me land this position straight out of my PhD. Uh, and so I kind of was, as long as this is going well, I would love to be on the forefront of these new discoveries uh, on a basic science level, but also with a longer term mindset that I am interested very much in translational science. And so if those opportunities remain available within academia, then I'm happy to stay in academia. Um, but I'm certainly not one of the people whose lifelong dream has been to be a, a professor. Yeah, so that's pretty funny because... Um... I'm exactly the opposite. Uh, my uh, <laughs> my lifelong dream was to be a professor and to never go into industry at all. That was sort of like, to me, considered taboo. I was really into the punk rock scene, totally not interested in, you know, big pharma. And um, so here I am. Cool. So you mentioned that you had graduated from Cornell with your PhD and following that you moved into your postdoc at UT Southwestern, and I think, you know, faculty, so it really does look like you were angling for that academic job. Can you just briefly describe what your experience was like through that? Yeah, so, you know, it's it was a really challenging time. So I ended up working uh, for 
Brown and Goldstein, who are famous for their um, understanding of the LDL pathway. So they won the Nobel in 1985. So I moved from Cornell, went to UT Southwestern, got to work with them who, uh, I mean, they're incredible scientists. Uh, I learned so much in that process. Uh, and really, uh, I think I was really set up for success by working with them. I had worked on a project that was actually very, very challenging. I was trying to do cryo-EM and crystallography of uh, a protein called Neiman-Pick type C1 disease protein uh, or NPC1. And uh, it was, it's a 13 transmembrane domain protein, very, very challenging to try and purify uh, and then to try and crystallize. Uh, it was, was incredibly, incredibly hard. So I ended up working on that for about four years and I got scooped right at the end of it, which was a really, really <laughs> painful process. But, uh, you know, what, what ended up happening out of that was um, I actually got to move into Peloton Therapeutics uh, and my boss, Dr. Brown, um, actually uh, suggested the position and he, he was on the board of directors and the scientific director uh, for that company at the time. So it just made the transition uh, fairly, fairly easy. And it was right here in Dallas. So I literally uh, on campus at UT Southwestern actually. And so I just, you know, kind of picked up my bags and moved down the street a little bit. I think it's so interesting how both of your careers sort of took this turn and you started at opposite direction and ended at the other's opposite direction. Is there any advice you would give to students who I guess are struggling to maybe be a little flexible about changing their plans or adjusting when opportunities present that they might not have necessarily considered? The universities as a whole have done kind of a poor job uh, helping people understand that there are, are other options out there besides going into academics. And so that's something that I think at a university level really needs to be addressed in many, many places. Yeah, I think at Johns Hopkins, they're doing pretty well now. They have the PDCO, the career office, that's very active and really developing new avenues for students to interact with. And I would say, I mean, I've always, the advice I give everyone is if you want to try something and you don't know where to start, reach out to people and you would be really surprised how willing people are to help you, whether that be to connect you with someone else who can help you get a, a position you want, or even just to steer you in the, in the general direction. So don't be afraid to email, call, stop by um, an office of someone who you're interested in connecting with. Yeah, that's, that's really good advice. Um, I was finishing my PhD about a decade ago. And at the time, you know, there really wasn't much. And so now I think a lot of universities probably have seen the importance of addressing that. Because when I was in graduate school, there were literally papers in nature and science that said, getting a PhD now is the best time ever because everyone's going to be retiring and they're going to be jobs aplenty. And then the economy crashed, right, in 2008. I think it was 2008, 2009, around then. And uh, nobody decided to, to uh, you know, retire. So uh, there then became an influx of PhDs into the system. And, you know, postdocs began to, began to become longer. Uh, and before that, you know, people would postdoc for two years and then get their uh, professorship, 
you know, and uh, things have changed so drastically. So the importance of really funneling people into other types of positions, uh, you know, early on is, is really, really important. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, Don. I think also somehow we've never reverted back to the two-year postdoc ever since academic institutions figured out they could keep people for six yeah. or eight years. That has almost become the standard, which I find terrible. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of improvement now with postdoc unions mm -hmm. advocating for shorter postdocs. But there needs to be really a, a fundamental institutional change in the way that postdocs are structured and funded. Also because at funded. that point in life, people are starting families yeah. or trying to buy a home and on a postdoc salary, it can be really hard. Yeah. And that's kind of capped by the NIH for the most part. So regardless right. of where you are in the country, um, you know, in the Northeast, if you're living off uh, $48,000 a year, you might really struggle. Whereas here in Dallas, actually Dallas is probably one of the best places to do a postdoc because the cost of living is so cheap. So, you know, I mean, there's, in California, it's the same thing. The cost of living there is, you know, outrageous. So, you know, it's, right. you've got to, you've got to like really find what works best for you. Yeah. So I guess in that sense, people who are on a one track mind, I mean, if you're driven and, and you're determined of what you want, then that's great. But also consider the rest of your life, right? You, what is your life going to look like over the next however many years you do a postdoc? And what are your goals after that? And where would you like to live in the country? And is that feasible with your plans? Yeah, and you're both bringing up phenomenal points. Carolyn, you went straight from your PhD to your professorship um, through uh, receiving and applying for a really, really prestigious fellowship. Can you share your thoughts on that? Because I think you have a really unique perspective of becoming a faculty member without doing a postdoc. Sure. I think, so with the position that I have, it's essentially an early independence position. And that requires a few criteria. Uh, one is that you are fairly certain in the research direction you want to go in and you have a solid research plan for starting your own lab. And the second is that you have demonstrated your ability to be independent. So a lot of graduate students don't always have the opportunity to lead their own, not only lead their own projects, but lead the own, their own thought process in designing their own projects. And that is really necessary if you're going to then step up and lead an entire lab's worth of projects. Uh, Another thing that I think is beneficial in a postdoc is that you get a new point of view and a new type of science. So generally people do a little bit different in their postdoc than what they did in their PhD, even if it's in the same general field. And by doing that additional training, you're now uh, increasing your mindset and your interest into an overlap of all of the things you've done, as opposed to if you come straight up out of your PhD, you sometimes risk competing with your PhD lab because your interests are exactly the same as what your PhD was in. One of the reasons it worked out for me was because I did my PhD in multiple labs and I ended up moving around a lot and doing a number of independent fellowships. And I did actually a year in, in Kyoto, Japan. I did a collaboration there in another lab. So I had a surprising amount of experience in different labs to have different viewpoints and different uh, interests in science that intersected in a way that allowed me to create my own niche to start my own lab. Uh, and so it's definitely um, the program that I, the fellowship that I have is very high risk, high reward. And so if, I, if someone is 
independent, really driven and knows the science that they want to pursue, then I definitely encourage them to apply or, or talk to someone. I'm happy to chat with people who are interested in this kind of program. Um, but it's not inherently better than a postdoc, right? There, there are, despite everything we've said about the negatives of a postdoc, there are also still important values of a postdoc. And so uh, it, you really need to think about what your strengths are and what you might still be able to gain from a postdoc before you reach your longer term goal, maybe of starting your own lab, because it is a little bit sink or swim. You, you are handed this independence and if you don't know how to handle it, then you're going to struggle. So Carolyn, can you describe a little bit about what your PhD work was like? I know we talked a little bit um, about your research background and I'm wondering if you could just you know, talk a little bit more about what your lab is currently focused on. Sure. Uh, so when I started my PhD, I was primarily interested in stem cell biology and epigenetics. Um, and ironically, I had told myself the only kind of stem cell biology I wasn't interested in was neural stem cell biology, because I had never worked in neuroscience. And it can, it can be very intimidating. It's such a complex system that if you're starting your PhD with no knowledge of neuroscience, you kind of feel like you're already behind. Um, but I ended up rotating in a neuroscience lab and loving it. And so, of course, that's the lab that I ended up joining, which was Hong Jun Song's lab. And I told him I was interested in epigenetics and out of pure luck and good timing, right as I joined, we had received a mouse to study uh, a new field called epitranscriptomics, which instead of chemical modifications on DNA is chemical modifications on RNA. And this was really, really new in the field of molecular biology and stem cell biology. Um, and so we had a conditional knockout in the brain of a specific enzyme that puts a specific methyl group on mRNA. And it turns out this single methylation of mRNA is wildly important for brain development and general stem cell behavior. And so we started that project and we characterized the mouse and we looked into the molecular mechanism of how does mRNA methylation actually function in a cell and more broadly in the brain. Um, and we published that work just as the Song Lab was moving to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and so it was an interesting transition for me because I had essentially finished my main project that I was working on before the lab moved. And so that my question became, do I want to move and start something new in a completely new place? Uh, or do I want to try to stay at Johns Hopkins and kind of start a new path? And I, I opted to stay at Hopkins and I ended up reaching out to Greg Semenza because he had done a very small study before on um, hypoxia inducing an mRNA demethylase, so the enzyme that removes methylation from mRNA. And I talked to him and I said, I saw you had this paper published and I'm interested in continuing some of this work, but I also need bench space to continue my work in neuroscience. And so I essentially made a deal with him that I would do a project for him in his lab if I could also use the space in his lab to continue my work in, in neuroscience. And so that's what I did. And I ended up working with Dr. Semenza on how hypoxia changes the mRNA methylation profile in breast cancer cells and how that is important for uh, cancer progression um, and, and cancer cell behaviors. So that was kind of an interesting duality of mRNA methylation in two totally different systems, which was in the end really beneficial to my more global understanding of how this is a fundamental regulatory system 
uh, and, but how also it can be adapted to have really different functions in different cell types. So that led to me, um, I, I mean, I also mentioned that I did a year in Kyoto for a collaboration and I did the uh, GRASS fellowship, which is a fellowship in neuroscience um, for a summer of independent work where you're given your own bench space um, and you're given some funding and you're allowed to kind of explore your own interests. So I did that and I kind of started developing these research and project ideas of things that were a little bit neuroscience, a little bit basic molecular biology, sometimes related to hypoxia and trying to form a broader idea of what my interests were. Um, and then uh, when I ended up starting my own lab here at UCSF, I think I have tried at least to create a good intersection of all of the different um, science I did in my PhD. And so some of the work is related to hypoxia in the brain, actually, which is really an easy intersection to, to look at. Um, but we're looking at primarily the fundamental regulation of the system of epitranscriptomics. So how uh, is mRNA methylated on particular transcripts? How is that induced? How is the demethylation induced? And, and why is that fundamentally important for a number of different biological systems? And then applying that to especially neural development, but also using some induced pluripotent stem cells to study if we can manipulate the system to manipulate stem cell behavior in a particular direction. I actually have a follow-up question to that because it seems like your research background while focused on mRNA modification is actually fairly um, diverse. So actually one question I have for you is as a researcher and now someone who is running um, their own research program, how do you strike a balance between wanting to try many things and avenues and being curious and wanting to follow your curiosity versus staying focused on a specific area? That's a really good question. I would say in my role as a PI, the easy answer is funding. You have to have a certain level of focus to get anything funded. So that's a a good driver to focus. Um, one thing that I do is I have just an ongoing, uh, doc, you know, word document where I write down a lot of my ideas and sometimes they're terrible and sometimes they're great. Um, and so it's a way to get the ideas on paper and then edit later because a lot of the creativity in science involves coming up with new ideas, but they're certainly not always going to be good ideas. And so that it, it is, in my opinion, a learned process. How do you filter what's a good idea? And your PhD is the time when you should be learning that, right? These are some conversations you should be having with your PI, with other people in your, your cohort, in classes. Um, this open discussion of I have this idea and here's what the long-term impact of this idea might be. And here's how difficult it would be to study this idea and then weighing in on those different aspects and asking yourself, is this worth pursuing now? And the other thing is, especially with such a new field like epitranscriptomics, we all have these really big ideas of what could someday be possible. And you, we have to be careful on what can we do in an unbiased way that's scientifically sound now. And if we take those steps and do good science, then down the road, we might be able to get at some of these bigger dream ideas. So that's not to say they're not good ideas, but you have to be realistic in what we can do now with what we know now and the tools we have now. So Don, you were working at Peloton Therapeutics for about a year 
part of the company being acquired by Merck. So what was it like working at a small to medium sized pharmaceutical company that then gets acquired by a larger company? Yeah, it's incredibly uh, interesting. I mean, it's a education all in itself. So um, what I probably haven't told you guys is that during this time, I was actually working on an MBA at the same time. So it was interesting just to be able to uh, to see what uh, acquisition was all about. But, um, you know, so, you know, there was a lot of excitement up uh, until the, the point of the actual acquisition because we were planning on um, going public. So uh, the day that we were supposed to go public was the day that we were purchased by Merck. And so it was it was quite odd because you know they're like hey check out our company's announcement and you're like great we've, we've finally done it we we've gone public and you know you click on the announcement and it's like oh Merck's bought us what you know it's totally mind blown uh and so uh i think for a lot of people there was there was some disappointment but also there's some excitement but some disappointment just we were building this thing and it was going to grow and uh, you know, we had the opportunity to do more and, you know, we had expanded what we were working on. We weren't just doing, uh, you know, HIF program anymore. We were working on some other really interesting new technologies. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, taken out from under us. But at the same time, uh, you know, for me, it was quite interesting just to see uh, how the whole acquisition process works and going from a small company to a large company and seeing the major just fundamental differences of how the two different style, you know, companies have, you know, their styles of doing things. Um, you know, a startup is very energetic. People are trying to get things done and it's fast, fast, fast. Uh, whereas these big companies, it takes a long time just to steer a ship uh, that size uh, at all. So, you know, it just doesn't move at the same speed, which is, is why I think one of the reasons uh, that they depend on acquisition so often, it's just easier and cheaper to buy a company um, than to do this kind of behavior uh, in a large company. Could I ask you a question, Don? Yeah. I, I read a little bit uh, about Merck's acquisition um, and how it's paying off specifically at least right now, through the HIF-2-alpha inhibitor mm -hmm. um, that's in late phase clinical trials. Yeah. I'm curious, do these big companies buy startups just for one drug? And is that a good strategy in terms of risk management? Because you're putting all your eggs in this one basket, um, as opposed to companies that have a few drugs in the pipeline. And then yeah. if they are buying it, even with a few drugs, if they have one that's the favorite, how often do they just drop the other ones? And how, how does that work for people who are working for the company that gets acquired, who are working on those, yeah. not, not to call them side projects, but maybe the projects that aren't um, exactly what that big pharma company is looking for? What, what happens to that work? Uh, you know, what I can say, I think, is, um, you know, there were multiple projects uh, and there seems to be one that they're really moving forward with. Uh, and that project is the one that you'll hear about in the news. And I think if you just look at uh, acquisitions as a whole, you'll see that that's kind of uh, what you described is basically what, what occurs generally, um, that 
what they're looking for, is, what most big companies are looking for is uh, something that's gone pretty far into the clinical uh, phases. So they want something that is, um, is less risky. Um, but for the most part, if you look at the, um, the amount of money that they spend on things, they're generally overpaying for companies. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, I'm not just talking about Merck, I'm talking about big pharma as a whole. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not sure that they're that interested in risk aversion, but they do try to uh, make it as riskless as possible by, you know, attempting to get companies that are late stage clinical. Do you think a lot of these companies that are late stage clinical have the goal of being acquired or, or how, if that is their goal, how do they navigate that as opposed to companies that would really like to go it on their own? You know, I, there's a fiduciary responsibility that all these companies uh, want, you know, want to fulfill. So um, the board is interested in making money. Uh, the VC firms that you've gotten money from, they want to make money. So, you know, it all comes down to, um, you know, who's got the most shares and, and who gets to pull the, the strings at the end of the day. So it's an interesting question because actually one of Merck's, biggest drugs today, pembrolizumab, their PD-1 inhibitor, was an acquisition. They acquired Organon. Uh, well, they acquired Sharing Plow, which acquired Organon. Um, but actually, the PD-1 program was relatively low priority. In fact, they had almost written it off completely at the time of acquisition because immune oncology was perceived as a very high-risk area before CTLA inhibitors. It's actually interesting. Sometimes acquisitions can work out in unintended ways and something that's deep, deep in the preclinical stages can work its way up to become one of the big um, drugs now at a very large pharmaceutical company. Yeah, Keytruda is, uh, is, you know, doing amazing. To your point, um, I think that that particular drug had kind of gotten... Uh, buried and just ended up somehow. Uh, I think that they were just going to axe the whole program, but somehow it ended up uh, coming back to the forefront. Okay, so now let's narrow our focus onto hypoxia. I uh, just want to touch on the subject because I think it's very interesting. And obviously, both of you have backgrounds in this area. So, can you guys just briefly explain what role hypoxia plays? specifically in cancer? The way that I typically explain it to my kids in many ways, um, like if, if you have a, a tumor, for instance, and the tumor becomes starved of food, it's going to send out signal that says, hey, I'm hungry. And so that signal leads to uh, an increase of blood vessels that in, in, enter into the tumor and provide food to the tumor and uh, allow you to uh, allow it to continue to grow. Otherwise, it becomes starved of oxygen because it's not getting any oxygen from blood and it doesn't get any nutrients from blood. So, uh, in the in the case of, of HIF2 and HIF1, um, there's a disease called VHL or von Hippel-Lindau, and and VHL uh, has a loss of function mutation, which leads to an increase in um, in HIF1 and HIF2 levels. And so HIF1 and HIF2 have, uh, you know, a lot of overlapping 
functions, but at the same time, they, they do have separate functions. So uh, HIF-1 has been described as a tumor suppressor, while HIF-2 has been described as a uh, oncogene. So you can imagine if you, if you get a you know, huge amount of an oncogene uh, because of a lack of the protein that leads to its turnover, then uh, you could end up with problems. And so what Peloton did was develop a drug that interacted at the interface of HIF2 and another protein called ARNT. And that caused the complex to break apart, which means that it's not able to activate hypoxic-inducible uh, uh, promoters. Going at more of a general overview of what what Peloton was really trying to do is drug the undruggable. And so one of the issues with transcription factors and many other proteins like, like HIF is that it's, it's, un, you know, it's kind of undruggable. And most, um, most drugs are directed towards an enzyme or something that binds something and has a known pocket for that thing. Uh, you know, and so you can make a, a small molecule that fits there and, and competes or make a small molecule that fits there and you know irreversibly uh, kills the protein. There's lots of different things that one can do uh, for enzymes to inhibit them. But that's not the case with transcription factors. Um, uh, there's they they don't really bind small molecules for the most part. And you know, so drugging the undruggable is really what this was was going towards and being able to uh, disrupt that complex with a small molecule was really groundbreaking. And I imagine with transcription factors too, like because they're not always, you know, their whole point is they only come on periodically and some of them come on in like these cyclical waves, especially in neurodevelopment, where it's on for a little bit, it immediately shuts off and then it's suddenly back up. And with cancer, when everything's going awry, like I imagine that's one of the reasons why transcription factors tend to be considered undruggable also is just this temporal instability. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's especially interesting about the HIF family of transcription factors is that actually the pathway that's being targeted here is their degradation pathway. So they are um, usually transcriptionally expressed at a fairly steady way, but very rapidly degraded at a, at a protein level. And so um, when hypoxia exists in a, in a cell, they the proteins become stabilized. But it's actually not quite the same as maybe your average transcription factor where the change is in its level of transcriptional expression. Um, but then of course with transcription factors, you also need to think about um, with things like HIF, it's a global regulator. And so can you target it in a way to only get the beneficial downstream effects you want, or at least minimizing the, the risk of, of shutting down kind of other pathways that are necessary? Um, and hypoxia is a really interesting cellular phenomenon because it is important in the body. It's, it's hugely important. So a lot of stem cells live in hypoxic niches and that's necessary for them to maintain their stem cell identity. And then the interesting part comes with cancer when you have these cancer cells and the tumor is growing. And like Don said, as the tumor grows, it becomes more and more hypoxic until the blood vessels can catch up. And that hypoxia changes the way that this, the cancer cells behave. So it can change their uh, metabolism, it can change their proliferation, it can change their metastatic potential. Um, and so the question becomes, can we kind of fight the way that cancer cells are respons responding to oxygen and making the cancer worse 
by inhibiting this global regulator of cellular response to hypoxia. I will also say though that different cancer types uh, are very different in how they use HIF and how they respond to oxygen. So um, yeah. Don had mentioned that HIF-1-alpha is often seen as the um, cancer suppressor, but that's not always true. So in, in, in breast cancer, for example, it often can also cause increased tumor progression. Um, but it's tough, right? We, we have these major targets um, and we have to suss out when they will be most applicable and try to understand why. Why are they so different in even something like different cancer types? I think another point um, to make here is that, uh, you know, in VHL um, disease, patients that have VHL disease are predisposed to having renal cell carcinoma. So that's that's really what we're trying. We were trying to uh, address was renal cell heart carcinoma in the background of a VHL patient, and so you know that's very different from the normal situation. Uh, someone with VHL disease is also going to not be able to degrade HIF two alpha or HIF one alpha, and so you know just to Caroline's point, you know every tissue is going to have different uh, transcription. Um, maps of, of the HIFs that they uh, express. And, and so it's going to be different, um, you know, in each tissue as well. So one thing I'm curious about, if you have a drug that you have validated, it now effectively inhibits this target. In this case, it's HIF2-alpha. What indication do you go after? What type of disease do you prioritize to try get and gain approval for first, even though the drug itself may have much broader application. Did you see that sort of decision-making playing out at Peloton? Uh, yeah, uh, very much. Um, and I probably can't really talk about that too much, uh, but it's key to have a strategy. You got to have a strategy. Actually, I think that um, it's an interesting question, so I can talk about it because... We can talk about anything. It's the beauty of academia. Um, there's what we, we're seeing now, actually, in relation to COVID nineteen, is how difficult it is it to develop a new drug and get it approved, and that is a huge, huge barrier. But once a drug is approved and available on the market, if it can be repurposed and and kind of expanded in what it can be used for, that's very fast. And so a lot of work now happening for COVID-19 is trying to screen pre-approved drugs that are already on the market and see if they can be applied to other systems. And so I imagine with things like HIF, they're so globally important in the body that there will be other applications. And it's important to start it in, in a group where, A, there's a critical need, right? So um, people with this kind of renal, renal cell carcinoma do have a critical need for it immediately and a high likelihood of success. Um, and then moving on from that in the future, there will be, I'm sure, a lot of other applications in kidney cancer for people who don't have these same genetic backgrounds um, who may be responsive or other types of cancer or other types of diseases even. It's not limited to cancer by any means. So you both are now in leadership positions and obviously one in industry, one in an academic setting. Um, what has that transition sort of been like and what is it like to now manage a team of people versus being the one that's, you know, kind of 
working independently as a lead scientist? I'll say that in, in my case, uh, it's a combination of um, scary and exciting. You're suddenly responsible for other people's careers, for their well-being and their progression in science. Um, so there's a lot to think about in terms of how can I best help this person while also moving forward the direction of my own lab. Um, but it's also really rewarding. I mean, it's so gratifying to talk with other people over the shared interests that we have um, and to do exciting science. Uh, for me, it, it came down to deciding what kind of leader I wanted to be. And I'm of the mindset that one should lead by example. So, you know, you you attempt to, um, and, and I learned that from my, <laughs> from my postdoc uh, because, you know, Brown and Goldstein, they would show up on the weekends. They were there, um, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day. And you don't get that from most PIs, I think, especially people who won the Nobel Prize. So just to see see that kind of uh, opened my eyes to the importance of uh, leading by example. So another thing for me was just to let go of the reins. As a PhD, you know, you're kind of in charge of your project. You, you, you've got to like really, really hold tight on everything and uh, make sure it's all moving at the right pace and you still do that but uh as a as a leader but at the same time you've got to allow people to have um you know some level of uh independence so that they can spread their wings being in industry don and academia caroline what is the work-life balance like for you now and What's your preferred work-life balance or maybe even how should people think about that concept? This is really interesting. I actually have been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, when I did my PhD, I worked really crazy hours. And then, but I still had hobbies on the, on the side. And so people would always ask me, how do you get so much done? And then on top of that, how do you have hobbies? How is that possible? And I think my response to that is I get so much done because I have hobbies, because I have an outlet to step away from my work. Um, and sometimes I do sacrifice sleep, which I'm still working on. <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in academia, it can be tough, especially for students and postdocs, because there's no you know, hourly salary. It's just your job and, and people can end up being here all night. Um, so I think w the way that I try to do it is set reasonable goals for myself and stick to it. Put your phone away. Don't let yourself get distracted um, and get your work done in a reasonable amount of time and then enjoy the time off you do have. And I try, I also will come in on weekends when necessary, but I try to maintain a balance just for my own mental health. Um, and I, I try to exemplify that for my trainees, that there does need to be a balance. Yeah, I think balance is key and something that I really have always struggled with. Uh, so it's not really something that I can say, like, I've solved the problem. Uh, because for me, you know, up until, um, in, up until I joined industry, you know, it was like 16-hour days uh, and every day. And, you know, if I, like taking a vacation... I ended up feeling guilty, you know, <laughs> like, like I'm, I can't take a vacation. What do you mean? You know? Uh, so for me really striking that 
balance is incredibly important. I've got three kids. Like I want them to know that they've got a father. Um, but at the same, same time, being a scientist is incredibly demanding. And so just coming up with ways to be incredibly efficient and, uh, you know, doing things uh, in such a way that you can answer more than one question. Uh, and, you know, those kinds of experiments um, that you know are going to be time consuming, you know, you, you plan out everything and get it right. Yeah, I agree. I think especially if you're doing bench work, plan your experiments. And if for some people it comes very naturally and for some people, myself included, I do a lot better if I write it down, if I write down the exact time that I need to do the particular part of the experiment and make sure I have my protocols printed out. I read through the protocol ahead of time fully before I start the experiment. Make sure you have all your um, reagents ready and plan ahead so that you're not screwing it up partway through. Yeah, that's a big part of science. A big part of learning how to do science too, I think. You see a kind of a progression from early stage graduate students who sometimes get overwhelmed in the middle of an experiment and end up having to repeat it a bunch of times to hopefully your more senior graduate students are efficient in being able to do things accurately. So Caroline, you're in academia, Don, you're in industry. How do you think about managing industry, academia, collaboration? I think I have, I have a few opinions on, on the intersection of industry and academia, namely that academia would hugely benefit from more intersection with industry. Um, one qualm that I have with academia is that all of the weight of success is is put in publishing whereas in industry the end goal is to create a marketable product Um, and with academia you could have a great career publishing in cell nature science and still end up not necessarily creating something impactful Um, and i would like to see a little bit more movement of academia toward output goals other than solely publishing Um, and, and working with industry can help move us in that direction. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Whenever I first moved to Peloton, I was, I asked them, you know, am I going to be able to publish? Like what kind of, and they were just like laughing. And I'm like, you know, like what, what's funny about that? And they, they were just like, oh, you know, 90% of all uh, stuff that's published is trash anyway. So who cares, you know? <laughs> And I was like, okay. It's really interesting. You talk to people in industry and you ask them, oh, you know, well, my lab works on this. Have you read our publications? Have you looked into the literature of this? And by and large, the answer is we don't depend on that as a source of information because so often it's not reproducible. And the reason it's not reproducible is because it doesn't have to be to right? There's very little oversight on whether this can be turned into a profitable thing. So you can publish things that are honestly wrong um, and there's very little consequences for that. Um, right. One thing that I really appreciated from working in Greg Semenza's lab is he had a very different approach to his science and that his end goal is to generate therapies for cancer. Um, and that was very clear in the standard to which he held the data that we produced Uh, he was not interested in weaving a story for a publication and fitting the data to that story. He was interested in generating high quality data that could be applied at an industry level or at a therapeutic level. And you can see he published largely in PNAS and JCB throughout his career. um, And 
I think a large part of why he won the Nobel Prize is because he's been so dedicated to finding genuine truths in science and not solely focusing on what is publishable. And I think that 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 requires integrity from a scientific standpoint uh, from the student to the PI as well as the institution. Yeah, and it'll be really interesting because um, if we take away publishing as the metric for success in academia, what do we replace it with necessarily? Because academia does not have the goal of producing a marketable drug. That's never going to be the goal of academia. It's primarily, at least in the life sciences, to do uh, basic science research and move that up to translational science research. Um, but if we're not publishing, how do we recognize high quality work? And I don't have the answer to that, but I think it's something that we need to consider as a scientific community um, and to raise the standards of what what we call success. Yeah, and and so I think there, you know, there would be a great benefit to have it to taking some lessons from industry. Uh, and industry could take some lessons from academia too. It's not a one-way street, um, but it all comes back down to how do we, how are we motivated, and and what are our end goals? What should someone who's on the verge of, you know, going on the next stage of their career after grad school, after postdoc, what experiences should they be seeking out to either get into industry or potentially, you know, to progress further in academia? Um, as far as uh, going into industry, I wouldn't waste any time in an academic postdoc. If I, if I were finishing my PhD and wanted to go into industry, I would go straight into industry um, and just identify a company that I liked, uh, you know, their mission statement and um, what kinds of things that they were working on. I, I would say try to get some experiences and, and explore your options a little bit. And that can be difficult because we all have limited time, right? You're not going to do 10 internships and all the different things you might be interested in. Uh, and, and so a good substitute for a, a solid experience is networking. Talk to people in these roles that you're potentially interested in. And it's, it's useful for you to learn what that role might be like, but it's also, also useful for you to make these connections with people already working in those roles. And you, you might be surprised how beneficial it really can be to have someone just know your name when you submit an application somewhere. So network, talk to people as much as possible, um, and, and it will help open doors for you down the road. Yeah, I think just to your point, Caroline, it, it's probably a really good idea to, to pick and choose your uh, conferences that you attend wisely. You want to go to something that has a, a broad range of uh, people from industry and, and uh, academics. Thank you, Don and Caroline, for sharing your perspectives with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chickermain. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>